chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And let me just read a few other verses. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Amen. One of the things that John records for us here, boys and girls, is the words of Jesus saying, I am thirsting or I thirst. It's kind of interesting to think about why under the inspiration of the spirit would John think that that's an important thing to record? Why would why would John sing, why would John single out these words I thirst? What is the significance of that? Well, I want to make the case to us today as we think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that to properly understand what Jesus is speaking about and why John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would record these words for us to meditate on until the Lord comes again that we need to look at these words through the whole lens of the whole Bible. And I want to go back and review with us, starting in Genesis, something of what I think John is getting at when he captures these words of our Savior. When you go back to the beginning of the Bible, boys and girls, what do we find? We find God made man in his image and everything was good. He put man, Adam, and his wife Eve in the garden. You remember that, don't you? And he told Adam and Eve that they could do what? They could eat of any tree in the garden except for one. There was one lone tree of which they could not eat, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in this garden, it was an amazing garden. It was a wonderful, verdant, lush garden. And there was no indication of any want in the garden. Everything was perfect. Everything was meeting man's needs perfectly. And in the garden, we are told by Moses that there was this amazing river that went through the middle of the garden. And the, the river was so significant that it even branched out into four major rivers throughout that region. Adam and Eve had everything that could sustain them in body and spirit. They had communion with God. God walked with them in the cool of the garden and they were well provided for. In the garden, in terms of all their creaturely needs. Everything was indeed paradise. It was perfect. And yet, because of Adam's sin, he lost everything that he had in the garden, including communion, most significantly, with God. And so God brought a curse. When Adam and Eve ate of that tree, which they were forbidden to eat of, they violated the express will of God. And because of that, there was a terrible consequence for Adam and Eve, for their souls, but also for their body. Now, the consequences were innumerable. But we see here is where the idea of want is introduced into the creation. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and violated his will, God brought curses upon man. 
And not only upon man himself, but God also brought curses upon the whole creation. So that when you read Romans 8, we are told that the whole of creation groans under the curse of God. Even today, these thousands of years later, the creation still labors, awaiting the redemption of the sons of God in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we see that God introduced want, or you could put it this way, thirst upon man and into the creation itself. First of all, we see that when Adam was expelled from the garden, he was excommunicated. The garden was a type of a temple. It was a, it was a place where God would come and meet with man. It, it was a, this is one of the reasons why commentators often believe that when the temple in Solomon's day was constructed, you had all these wonderful palm trees and pomegranate trees. In, in the decoration of the temple itself, it was, it was a picture trying to recapture the beauty of that original garden where God dwelt with Adam in the beginning before the fall. And man was removed from that garden. And when he was removed from it, he was removed from that wonderful communion with God. And he was removed from that wonderful river that nourished the garden. He was expelled. And he was not only he driven from that place, but the the place to which he was driven now was under a curse. The ground upon which Adam labored was cursed. The ground began to thirst. And Adam now had to labor in that cursed earth by the sweat of his brow. And so we see that Adam himself began to thirst physically, even as now Adam and Eve began to thirst spiritually because of the loss of sweet communion with God. And so one of the things that that, that Moses introduces into the scriptures that I think is a theme that carries all the way to the end of the Bible is this theme of thirst because of the fall of man. Because of sin, man physically thirsts, but we also thirst because we have lost something that we had in the beginning when we had this communion with God. And so the the idea of thirst and a loss of fellowship Go hand in hand throughout the scriptures. Let me see if I can help flush this out for us a little bit more. Thirst became a significant motif in the Bible and throughout redemptive history. So that, for example, after Moses speaks about the excommunication of Adam and Eve out of the garden and beginning to thirst physically and spiritually, we see that when God does begin his redemptive work, beginning to call back to himself a people, boys and girls, for himself, we see that nevertheless, those that he calls labor under this curse. You think of Abraham, who was the first one, one of the first ones that God calls to himself. He calls Abraham and he brings Abraham into a covenant relationship with him. But what do we find? We find Abraham having to build wells because of where he is. We see that a famine comes upon the land where Abram and Sarai are dwelling. And so they have to go down into Egypt. And we have that precursor of God delivering his people out of Egypt by Abram and Sarai coming out of Egypt because of this great famine. We are told by Moses that Isaac would then have to quarrel with his idolatrous neighbors over what? Over wells. They're competing against the precious resource of water. And 
Because of that, Isaac is brought into conflict. And so Isaac builds a well and they quarrel over it. And he builds another one and they quarrel over it. And he builds another one and they quarrel over it. Finally, he builds one and there's no more quarreling over it. And he calls it Rehoboth. God has provided room. God has provided space for his people. Jacob would have to be brought into Egypt like his grandfather Abraham via Joseph because of the seven years of drought in the promised land. We see that water runs out for Sarai's maid, Hagar and Ishmael, and yet God provides. Teaching that even the nations need to quench their thirst by coming and trusting in God. But then as you move through redemptive history, we see, I think, the, the, this theme and this motif of thirsting being expanded upon. So that when God's people are now in Egypt, remember that through Joseph, the people of God, they went into Egypt 70 in number and they became a great multitude. And Moses begins to preach to Pharaoh, let my people go. He begins to preach the word of God and Pharaoh begins to resist the word of God and becomes hard in heart. And what is one of the first judgments that God brings upon Pharaoh and the people of God? He turns their water into blood. He curses the provision of water. When God's people are eventually delivered out of Egypt into the wilderness, what do we find? They begin to murmur and complain and they quarrel. Why? Because they say to Moses, have you brought us out here just to kill us? Where are we going to get water? And we have the, the quarreling at, at Merah. And, and, uh, and, and, and so Moses is told to speak to the rock. And the rock, we are told in the New Testament, is who? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. The rock is a type of Christ. And boys and girls, what comes out of that rock to feed the people of God? It is water. God meets the needs of his people through Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons, boys and girls, why Moses was not even allowed into the promised land. You'll remember because he did not obey the voice of God and speak to the rock with reverence. But he struck the rock. And because of that, even Moses, as great as Moses was, was forbidden to go into the promised land. But there we begin to see again. God is doing what? Through Christ. He's beginning to teach the people of God about the coming Messiah who would be Jesus Christ for us. And that in Jesus Christ, our, our want is met. Our need is met. Our thirst is quenched in Jesus Christ, the rock. Jesus is the one who provides water for our souls. Jesus is the one who provides refreshment for us. Jesus is the one who provides sustenance and life for us in this fallen wilderness that we live in. The things of this world will not sustain you. They may give you temporary pleasure. They may give you amusement. They may give you even a sense of the glory that God does sometimes give even by common grace to, to sinners. But all of those things eventually cannot sustain a soul. We were not made to be sustained by the mere creation. We were, we were to be sustained by God himself. It is God who is to sustain us. He is the rock who provides water for us. And therefore, we see, congregation, that we must look by faith to Jesus Christ always. In this world that is a, is a wilderness. It is a desert compared 
to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth. So the people who had been delivered by God through Moses' preaching did not trust in God and they murmured against God. And yet God graciously still yet provided for them. And so as you move through redemptive history, what's the next segment of redemptive history? Well, the people of God come to the edge of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But before the people of God can enter into the promised land, what does God do with them? He renews the covenant. And we have the book, what is known as the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law of God, the second giving pronouncement. And what does God do in those famous chapters, chapters 27, 28? Those are some of the most significant chapters in Deuteronomy. If, you, if I had to say, you know, pay attention to what are, one of the most important Old Testament books is Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And what are the, some of the most important chapters in the book of Deuteronomy is chapters 27 and 28, because there is where God sets forth before the people of God, the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. And, and if you will obey me, my people, I, God, will bless you. And if my people disobey me, I will curse them. And I set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. And so before they enter into the promised land, God is reminding them to have faith in him and obey and keep his word. But what is among the curses of the covenant? What does God remind them? That their disobedience, one of the curses would be that their sky up above, their sky, boys and girls, would be as bronze. And the earth beneath their feet would be as iron. Now, why does God say that the sky will turn bronze and the earth like iron? It's a poetic way of explaining thirst, drought. It'll seem as though the sun is always in the sky. And it'll seem as if the earth without that nourishment of the water will become as hard as a rock, as hard as iron. It's a way of describing that one of the curses of the covenant because of their disobedience would be a lack of water. They would thirst. In fact, Moses says in verse 24 of Deuteronomy 28 that the rain of their land shall become powder. Their rain will be dust. They will know no moisture. The disobedience of God's people in the covenant, in the promised land, would be that they would thirst and they would hunger. And so we see this, for example, in the book of Ruth, where what do we find? We find Naomi and her husband and, and sons. And, and what do they do? They go into Moab. And there Naomi loses everything. The people of God are under this curse and Naomi and her family not responding the way they should. They should have stayed in the land despite the hardship, despite the, the, the curses that God was bringing. It should have led them to faith and repentance in God. Instead, they go into a land what of idolatry. And she says when she comes back, don't call me Naomi. I went out full and I came back empty. And yet God would be gracious to her wouldn't in the midst of all the curses she would provide one who would lead to the son of David, Jesus Christ. 
You know, you think also the story of Elijah. You know, James in chapter 5 takes up this as well in the New Testament. And I don't know if you've ever thought it strange. Why would Elijah pray that God would withhold rain for three and a half years? Now, is Elijah just sitting at home saying, hey, this would be a really neat trick to do as a prophet? Would this, wouldn't this be neat? Am I, is, is Elijah just showing off when he says, hey, I'm going to pray that it not rain. I just think it would be fun that, uh, it, that I, I could show the world. No, I, what is Elijah doing when he prays that God withhold the rain? He is praying the covenant. He's praying Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. He is praying. He is. Remember, what, what is Elijah's situation? Elijah finds himself very alone. Now, he's not as alone as he thinks he is, because remember that there are some that still have not bowed the knee to Baal. But for the most part, the entire nation has gone into apostasy. There's been a tremendous spiritual decline in the visible church in Elijah's day. And so Elijah, reading the book of Moses, reading Deuteronomy, what does he do? He sees what God has promised in his word, that if the people of God are unfaithful, he will withhold the rain. And so Elijah begins to pray that God would curse the people in order that he might bring them to their senses, in order that they might know their misery and that they might return to the living God, which leads to the whole climactic event at Mount Carmel, where they have the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where the fire falls upon the sacrifice that Elijah offers and not upon the sacrifice of Baal. And so here again, we see that, that the disobedience of God's people leads to thirst. It leads to drought. When we get to the second book of the Psalter, which is Psalm 42, the first Psalm and the second book of the Psalter, there are five books in the Psalter. Uh, it opens with what? We find that the psalmist is separated from the house of God. He is in exile he is separated from the place of communion with God. And what does he say? My soul longeth after God as what the deer panteth for water. He brings that illusion again, that motif of separation, loss of communion with God as one who thirsts in a time of drought. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, even in the days of David, when David was making progress in building the kingdom of God among God's people in Israel, not everything had been conquered. Bethlehem was still under occupation by the Philistines, we're told. And while, it is, while David is separated from his place of birth, while David is separated by the enemy from fulfilling what he was supposed to do in the conquest of the land. What does David say? He says, I oh how I thirst for the waters of Bethlehem. Here again, David is experiencing something of the loss that has come because of the disobedience of God's people. David is having to reconquer land that should have already been theirs. So when we get to the New Testament, John, who loves themes and loves motifs, it should not surprise us. 
that John, who loves the theme of light and darkness, also loves the theme of drought, thirst and water. Let me give you a couple examples here. In John chapter four, John introduces to us the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. John chapter 19 is actually not the first place that John introduces this theme of I thirst. But rather we see it in that strange encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. Now, you know the story. The the disciples are off getting food. Jesus is hanging out in this Samaritan village by himself. And he goes over to the well of Jacob. And there's a woman there and it's it's around lunchtime. It's noon. And the woman is by herself. Now, why is she by herself? Well, she's by herself because she's a sinner. And, and she herself has been exiled, in a sense, not only from God, but from God's people. Uh, because she has had multiple men in her life, probably men of other women who would have gone to the well in the morning, as the women tended to do at the beginning of the day when it was not so hot. And as it was often a time of social recreation for women. Here we find, though, for this woman, she is completely alone. And so she is separated from God, by her sins, she is separated from fellowship with others in the community. And yet Jesus says to this woman, this Samaritan woman, woman, give me something to drink. And the woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? For we are told by John that Jews ordinarily did not have dealings with Samaritans. And, of course, Jesus responds by saying, well, if you knew the one who it was that asked you for this water from the well of Jacob, you would have asked him for some water yourself. You would have asked him for some living water. Now, she doesn't understand this immediately, what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about something spiritual here. She's still thinking somewhat literally. And she's saying, what kind of water are you talking about? You don't have a bucket. You don't have anything to draw with. And this well is pretty deep. And Jesus begins to explain to her. But I'm speaking about the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you about something better than the water of Jacob. You drink of this water from Jacob's well and you're going to thirst again. But I'm going to give you water that if you'll drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Why? Because you will have communion with God. And this woman's interested all of a sudden. She said, I'd like some of this water. And so she begins to have a theological conversation with Jesus. And she said, well, you know, we worship at this mountain and you guys worship at that mountain in Jerusalem. And Jesus reminds her that the Jews are right. That the the Jews are right, that you should be worshiping in Jerusalem right now. But there's a time coming and now is. When they shall worship neither on this mountain nor that one. But they shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why? Because the spirit will be given. Jesus Christ, who will thirst for you, the Samaritan woman, he will go to the cross and thirst for you. And because he thirsts for you, he will give you water that leads to everlasting life. And it won't matter whether you live in Jerusalem or whether you live in Samaria or whether you live in the United States of America. You won't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to get a Delta ticket And go to the quote unquote holy land. I don't really like it when they call it the holy land. It's not holy anymore. That holiness was for a season. It was was holy 
for a period of redemptive history until the coming of Christ. Jesus tells us in John 4, it doesn't matter anymore. It's not holy anymore. God has destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple for a reason. Because those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth through faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is telling this woman here that he has water. He can quench her thirst. Her thirst is a lot deeper than she realizes. She's still thinking somewhat literally. And so Jesus says, all right, I'm going to show you how thirsty you are. Go call your husband. And suddenly her conscience goes, ouch. Because she realizes that she doesn't have a husband. She's had five husbands in her past. Her past haunts her. Husband is probably one of those trigger words for her that conjures up guilt. And that's why Jesus says it. Go get your husband. Guilt. I've had five husbands and the man I'm living with right now is not my husband. And she confesses that to Jesus and she says, I perceive you are a prophet. Are you greater than... Our fathers who built this well? The answer is yes. And so Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah. She says, you know, I know you guys say there's a Messiah coming. And we believe that here in Samaria too. And Jesus says, I am he. I am that Messiah who fulfills the law of Moses and who gives water. To thirsty people. And she goes off and she tells others and they come and they hear the gospel message and they say to the woman, we believe because we have heard too, not just because you have told us. But now we believe for ourselves. Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. He is the one who gives everlasting life. He is the one who gives the water that leads to eternal life. And so John doesn't leave us there. He takes us to John chapter 7. And here in John chapter 7, we deal with the Feast of Booths. And we are told in John 7 that on the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood up and he said this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, is he speaking here literally again? Or is he speaking like he did to the woman at the well? Well, he's doing the latter. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me. Notice that. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The thirst that Jesus is speaking of is a spiritual thirst. And the quenching of which Jesus is speaking of is a spiritual quenching by the spirit of God. John tells us this because he interprets the words of Jesus for us. But listen to this. He says, but this he, Jesus, spoke of the spirit. John is telling us what Jesus means by this idea of thirsting and quenching the thirst. He is speaking here of those who become sensible of their need before God to have communion with God. It's been lost. It's been lost since Adam. And ever since the fall of our first parents, we have thirsted. For something more in our life. 
And Jesus comes and says, if you are sensible of your thirst, come unto me and I will quench that thirst. I will give you meaning and significance of that of, for your life. And John tells us he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given. Spirit has not been poured out yet because Jesus, get this, was not glorified. Because Jesus was not yet resurrected. And so when John writes his final book, which, uh, boys and girls, is the book of Revelation. John, who wrote this gospel, wrote some other books. And the last one he wrote on the Isle of Patmos was the book of Revelation. And when you get to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, what does John do? In the opening verses of the last chapter, John tells us that he sees in his vision, in his revelation, singular, he sees the glory of heaven. And he says this, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. He sees the glorious, great white throne. And what is coming from that throne, boys and girls? The river. It's a picture of the restoration of what was lost in the garden. The river is coming from God. And notice here, and of the Lamb. It's coming from Jesus Christ. In the middle of its street. And then notice here, you get the picture of the garden again. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You have the river and you have the tree of life planted on either side. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. And then if that were not enough, five verses from the end of the final end of the whole Bible, we have that invitation one more time. If anyone is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take water of life without cost. Let the one who wishes, excuse me, take the water of life without cost. If anybody here needs something that only God can give you, we have an invitation in the closing verses of the Bible to come to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you feel like your life is lacking significance and meaning and you've been trying to find that meaning by various pursuits in your life, but yet... It leaves you somewhat like the author of Ecclesiastes, still unsatisfied and empty and everything seems to be vain. It is because you haven't yet drunk of the water of life in Jesus Christ. The reason you're still thirsting, the reason you're still running around like a madman, trying to find something to satisfy you, whether it's workaholism, whether it's pleasure, whether it's uh, sexual immorality, whether it's drug use, whether it, it, it is uh, some kind of idolatry, maybe family, maybe it's uh, some other hobby. 
The reason it always seems to fail you is because it was never intended to satisfy you in the beginning. These are good gifts from God and we thank God for them. But they will not meet the God-shaped void that you have in your life, as Augustine called it. Only Christ, only the living God who gives living water can satisfy. Now, how is all this accomplished? All that was lost by the first Adam and all the thirsting that we see through redemptive history in the Bible. And yet we have this future promise of restoration and consummation at the end of the Bible. But how is all this accomplished? Well, that's what our text is about, isn't it? John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, I thirst. Now, was John just simply interested in that as just a kind of a, an aside theologically? I don't think so. Given what John has written in John chapter 4, given what he's written in John chapter 7, given what he's written in Revelation 22, this is an important word John is saying here. Jesus is thirsting. He is thirsting certainly physically. But if we just think that that means I just need a little drink. We're missing, I think, the point. Jesus is on the cross accomplishing our salvation. And what is he doing there on the cross? He is bearing the penalty for our sins. He is thirsting because his communion with God has been cut off. The Father who has always been with the Son, who has always given Him the full fellowship of the Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son, now has turned His back. Or maybe a better way to put it is now turned His face, but only in wrath and judgment and justice towards Jesus Christ. Now Jesus is the sin bearer. And therefore He is cut off. Therefore, he is fulfilling the words of the psalmist, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why, why, why does he experience what is written in Psalm 22? My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, says the psalmist in Psalm 22. Because you are bearing the sin and the guilt of the world and you are being punished for that. And the communion which Adam and Eve had in the garden now has been cut off. You, as the second Adam, you have lost it because of the first Adam's sin. You, you now are drinking the wrath of God. The only cup that Jesus drinks now is the cup placed in his hands by the Father that Jesus prayed. If there was any other way, let that cup pass. But not my will, but thine be done, said Jesus Christ. And what is that cup, boys and girls? That cup is the cup of judgment. It's the, it is the wine of God's fierce anger. And it is placed into the hands of Jesus to drink, figuratively speaking. Because Jesus must pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. Jesus must be cut off. Jesus must undergo the thirst. This is what caused Jesus to tremble in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he would thirst. He knew he would be put into a place, body and spirit, a place of desolation. A place of agony. You remember the rich man who went to hell and he longed for Lazarus who was in Abraham's bosom to take just his finger and put it in some water and just a drop from his finger on his tongue because I'm in this place of agony. Well, Christ was in that same place of agony. Multiplied. 
The rich man was there for his sins. Jesus is there for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. For the sins of all of God's elect, Jesus is dying on the cross, body and spirit. And the wrath of God, when we say that Jesus descended into hell, that's where it took place while Christ is on the cross. That's why the sky, though it's 12 o'clock at noon, it becomes like outer darkness, Egyptian darkness, darkness, judgment that God placed on Egypt typologically is now falling on the head and shoulders of Jesus Christ and he thirsts. There is no other way of salvation but for Jesus to thirst. The only way for us to be saved is that the Son of God should be deprived. That he experience wrath and the shameful, cursed death of the, of the tree. And hang on that tree. There is no redemption for us if Jesus does not thirst for us. His body, his soul must be cut off from every comfort. He must atone for sin as a guilt offering. And so the way that Jesus accomplishes the restoration that was lost by Adam is undergoing the deprivation of all that God offered to man if we would believe in him. Jesus thirsts, he suffers, but what does he do? He invites us to come to drink. And by drinking, he means believing. Listen to the words of Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 2. Isaiah 55, verse 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money... Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, essentially is what Isaiah was saying, 700 years before Jesus came. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ and God will quench your thirst. God will quench your thirst. He will satisfy your deepest needs, your deepest longings. They can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing we need to understand as we think about the resurrection. Jesus, having satisfied the demands of God's law by thirsting, he dies for our sins. And as the scriptures say, he rose from the dead on the third day and he ascended to the father. And what is the first thing Jesus do does when he goes to the father? He sends for the spirit, doesn't he? So that when we come to Acts chapter 2, Jesus, who was crucified, now victoriously raised bodily from the dead, risen to be seated at the right hand of the Father, the very first thing Jesus does with all power and authority having been given unto him is to give you the water that you need. He gives the Holy Spirit to the church. He pours out according to the promise that he would sprinkle the nations. And he pours out his spirit. And today we still are under this administration in the covenant of grace. The spirit of Christ has been given and he calls us effectually through the preaching of the gospel to come to Christ. I preach that you come to Jesus, but it is the spirit who applies that invitation to your heart. 
that you who hear the very words of the shepherd come unto me. Ye who thirst Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, does what in Psalm 23? He leads you to quiet waters. The same Savior who in Psalm 22 is thirsting on the cross, as prophesied by David, now in Psalm 23 is leading us to still waters. He's leading us to a place to drink because he's been raised from the dead. And I, in the name of Jesus Christ, offer you this invitation. Whether you're a young child here, whether you're an adult, whether you're a visitor. Jesus has been raised from the dead. To satisfy your deepest needs. And I invite you in the name of God, through Jesus Christ, to believe on Jesus Christ as the son of God who died for your sins and was raised from the dead. And the Bible says that if you will believe that from you will come rivers of living water. The promise of the Spirit welling up within you will be fulfilled in your own life. Have you accepted Jesus Christ yet as your Lord and Savior? Boys and girls, you who have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, have you received Jesus as your Savior yet? Have you believed on Him and trusted Him? Said, Lord, I'm thirsty. I know I'm a child of the covenant. I know I'm in the visible church, but Lord Jesus... I need you to satisfy me. I need you to fill me with your spirit. I need your grace. I need your power. I need your joy that is unspeakable. I need I need the spirit of God. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lead me, Lord Jesus, to water. Lead me to water. Fill me. That I might have sweet communion with you. Amen. Let's pray.